predominant capabilities required for the joint force to do irregular warfare are cognitive. They, they exist in the six inches between people's ears. But we said exquisite understanding is more valuable than exquisite capabilities. If you understand why you're in the predicament you're in, or why you're in a fight, or what the opportunity is in front of you, that's more valuable than you know, X number of squadrons or carrier strike groups or whatever you, you might have, BCTs or A teams. Because now you you can actually go about solving the problem you have and not the problem you want to have. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And in this episode, I got the chance to talk to Dave Stevenson. He works in the Pentagon as the Director of the Joint Staff's Office of Irregular Warfare and Competition. And so naturally, we talk a lot in this conversation about irregular warfare, but not exclusively. As you'll hear, he really conceptualizes irregular warfare within a much broader context, including the emergence of competition as a really major part of the collective U.S. defense paradigm. It is a really fascinating conversation, and he has a unique perspective based on the work his office does. Before we get to it, though, a few notes. First, if irregular warfare is a subject you're interested in, we actually have an entire podcast series devoted to that topic. It's called the Irregular Warfare Podcast. It's a joint project with Princeton University's Empirical Studies of Conflict Project, and it's available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Second, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dave Stevens. Mr. Dave Stevenson, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. That's my pleasure, John. So you are currently the director of something called the Office of Irregular Warfare and Competition in the Joint Staff J7. Can you can you describe a little bit what the role of that office is? Yeah, I, I work on that every day. <laughs> um, so the office was established in 2011 after the Joint Forces Command was disestablished. When we uh, got rid of the Joint Irregular Warfare Center, a lot of senior leaders felt something had to continue to keep the eye on the ball, as General Odierno said it. And so uh, I was moved from the Regular Warfare Center in Hampton Roads up to the Pentagon, and it went into the J-7 because the predominant capabilities required for the Joint Force to do Regular Warfare are cognitive. They, they exist in the six inches between people's ears. And the J-7, having responsibilities for joint training and education and doctrine and concepts that was the logical fit for it so there were 53 responsibilities the joint irregular warfare center had at joint forces command and we distilled it down to one uh, which was to produce the assessment of the armed forces ability to conduct regular warfare for the chairman uh, he is mandated to do that and DOD Directive 3000 TAC 07, the Regular Warfare Directive. So my office principal function is to conduct those assessments for the chairman and to use that to uh, inform other assessments that the chairman is responsible for. Now, that was the original task that still exists. We still produce that. Uh, General Milley signed one in Jan uh, December, as a matter of fact. But 
We also have taken over responsibility as a secretariat for the department's uh, Irregular Warfare Executive Steering Committee. That is co-chaired by my boss, uh, currently Lieutenant General Dan O'Donohue, and the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict. Uh, Mr. Chris Miller is performing those duties right now. So that body is chartered by the Secretary to ensure implementation of DOD's policies relative to irregular warfare. And I co-chair the, the working group that supports it. Uh, in addition, things have come across our, our, our desk uh, for several years. When we do an assessment, we identify a gap or uh, something that needs to be done. The normal response is we'll go fix it. Which So we produce these assessments, but they're always with recommended actions to, to correct problems or to take advantage of opportunities. Uh, uh, for instance, is Counter Threat Network several years ago, we were directed uh, to go out and conduct an assessment of the department's ability to do counter threat networks and to provide that back to the chairman. So those types of one-offs we do quite a bit of. The big thing that we've done in the last, well, probably since we were established, is we co-led development of the department's uh, irregular warfare annex to the National Defense Strategy with SOLIC. So we're, we have responsibilities for overseeing that on behalf of the Executive Steering Committee and the Steering Committee reports to the Deputy Secretary uh, for that implementation. So I want to ask, you know, we tend to think of, um, you know, if you, if you think of irregular warfare as, you know, COIN and CT and foreign internal defense and and things like that, it tends to be things that, that are done by ground forces, but you are on the joint staff. So I want to ask maybe, um, you know, in, in your opinion uh, or in your experience, what are sort of the roles of, the, you know, the services that own, say, the Air Domain, the Air Force, the, or the, the Sea Domain, uh, the Navy, what are their roles in irregular warfare? They have tremendous roles in irregular warfare. Um, I had a conversation with the Navy Admiral when we were in the process of developing the annex, and their concern was that we were going to put demands on the services to go by specific platforms for irregular warfare. And, you know, he quite artfully described it. Carrier strike group leaves port and it goes off, goes out over the horizon and then it deals with whatever comes along. So they don't have an irregular warfare task force and a traditional warfare task force. And we're like, yeah, we get it. Absolutely. Uh, you're not going to have IWF-18s and traditional F-18s. You don't have one platform with one pilot. And the point, though, is you as a... Navy fighter pilot, Navy naval aviator, need to be able to fly tactics or employ tactics that are applicable to the context of an irregular fight or traditional fight. So you have to know how to fly close air support for a Marine platoon that's engaged in a in a coin fight, or a, a you also have to be able to attack a missile defense system, you know on an island in, in one of our adversarial places. So the capability that you sail with is between your ears. It's the knowledge that you have of how to fly that plane differently. And your target hearers need to know how to target differently. And your weaponeers need to be able to weapon the plane differently. And so that's just one example of how it, it's applicable to, to that 
to that fighter pilot at the, at the moment. They have responsibilities in the littorals. Um, there's all kinds of things the Navy has to do. Intelligence collection, some of most sophisticated platforms the Navy owns, and they need to know how to collect in, against a regular threat as well as a traditional threat. Air Force, same thing, um, to include airlift, right? You know, uh, getting forces and resources moved around the world sometimes happens a little differently in a regular context than in a traditional context, as well as the ISR that the Air Force brings to bear and everything else. I mean, the Navy's flown more P3 and P8 orbits over land than they have sea almost in the last 20 years. So when you have an anti-submarine platform that's doing such exquisite work over land, that tells you that everybody's got a, a role in it. Yeah. You know, we, some of the, so, so some of these components of irregular warfare are um, kind of doctrinally um, assigned to, and if they're not doctrinally assigned to, the expertise often rests with special operations forces across all the services. Special operations forces tend to be, um, you know, some of the best in terms of tactically working across services, um, working jointly, you know, at a, at a very small unit level. If you zoom all the way up to the, the, the Pentagon level, up to the strategic level, how does, how does irregular warfare look from a planning and policy perspective? Um, in, in, and why, you know, why is it important that that's done jointly? Well, so the combatant command staffs write their plans, write their strategies and execute them. The service components in those combatant commands do much of the same. The joint staff works for the joint chiefs, uh, and it's made up of officers and civilians who come from a wide variety of backgrounds, just like the combatant command staffs and JTF staffs. So the expertise has to be pervasive across the force. Otherwise, you get, you know, you get plans and concepts and operations that are not appropriate for the situation. And that's one of the single biggest issues we've had. Uh, one of the reasons we just can't seem to close a deal in a lot of these conflicts is because the, tactically, whether you're talking about special operations forces or conventional forces, the guys and the gals on the ground figure it out. Uh, there's, there's setbacks and there's some, you know, uh, unevenness at times in that, but tactically, we always seem to figure it out. At the operational strategic levels is where we fall down. And one reason is because we just don't have enough knowledge and appreciation of the context of a regular warfare at all those levels. So one of the things that, uh, in recognition of that, the, the IW Annex tells us to improve the understanding across the entire joint force and some things, for instance, uh, the, the Joint Staff J-5 director has told his staff, you know, we're going to make sure that we have this fully inculcated. These approaches are fully included in the development of our campaign plans. Uh, the biggest problem we have from my perspective, from my office perspective, is I don't have enough people to be the IW planner for everybody in the world. I'm a very small organization. So we have to get that knowledge and that approach and the appreciation for what it means more pervasive across the board. 
So you you said that your team is a small team, uh, your team in the office of irregular warfare and competition, which I understand until um, at least somewhat recently was just called the office of irregular warfare, tacking on and competition um, seems to me like maybe an important signaler about or, or of kind of intent uh, in an era when, as we increase, we talk about more and more is increasingly characterized by great power competition. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of irregular warfare in that era. Yeah. So uh, we, there's a lot of effort in the department right now to figure out how we would uh, handle a peer fight. Uh, And it should be, we should be very concerned about that. You know, the, the, the ability to have that sit stay moment with an adversary is what deterrence is all about. We have to have a credible uh, deterrent capability and, if need be, win that next fight. Uh, but all that stuff that was in the National Defense Strategy about competition sort of took a back seat to that uh, when people read, in particular, the services. And the services drive everything because they've got the money. And the service chiefs are supposed to provide a warfighting capability to the combatant commander. So they focus there op- naturally. The National Defense Strategies of Regular Warfare Annex was designed to get us out of a reactive and into a proactive stance in regard to great power competition. And so as we tried to work through how we would do that with irregular warfare, Understanding that irregular warfare is a a component of that competition. It is not competition writ large. There's all kinds of things that go into it. Security cooperation, uh, industrial or industrial based defense, uh, the security, those types of things. All these things happen uh, in that competition space. But as we tried to figure out what the irregular warfare piece was, we found out that we were about the only people who were really working on the competition space itself. And so when our senior leaders took a look at what we were doing, they said, you have a critical path already designed to get at the irregular warfare piece. We just want you to expand the scope and take on the, the larger conceptual approach to uh, competition. And so that's, that's how we got renamed and retasked. So is there a tension then between, you know, you said you acknowledge the importance of being able to compete with and, and ultimately if necessary, escalate to, to conflict and win uh, in conflict with a peer or near peer adversary. At the same time, you clearly, you know, mentioned the importance of having this irregular warfare capability. There is a tension between readiness for each of those because there are limited resources, limited training time, um, you know, limited ability to develop, you know, these sort of dual capabilities. What in your opinion is the, is the, is the best mechanism to sort of relieve that tension, tension and, and create kind of a sense of balance? Well, first is a recognition that we don't own the competitive space. We DOD under title 10 don't own it. We are completely dependent on other departments and agencies and some of our allies and multinational partners to create conditions that allow us to be successful. If you look at competition, you can look at this competition two ways. You can look at it as we're competing for 
the ability to be successful in conflict when and if that conflict comes. You can also look at we're trying to beat the enemy at their own game. I mean, the Chinese and the Russians in particular are, are have been working this competition, silent war, what, I mean, all different types of things people call it for decades. And they've got a pretty good head start on us in a lot of ways. We were distracted for a long time. And uh, so if, if you're looking to, to deny them their strategic objectives, that's one way. Or if you're looking at set conditions so that if you have a war, you'll be successful, that's the other way to look at it. I, I think they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, but I think what has really started to resonate with the leadership here is realization that so much of what we have is at risk. Uh, and it's a risk that, that keeps us from potentially not being able to employ our full spectrum of capabilities if we have to in a conflict and might drive the escalation ladder in ways that we don't want it to go. That would not be good for anybody. So for instance, if a country is buying up port facilities or 5G capability or anything else. They can turn that stuff on and off and deny us the ability to use it when we need it uh, or access to it when we need to flow forces or logistics or anything like that. These are very generic examples, but I really can't go into a lot of details. But that realization has had the services as well as the combatant commands looking for solutions. And one of the things that we've been pounding the table on for a long time is that our number one issue with irregular warfare in the Department of Defense is our inability to achieve and sustain unified action or unity of effort with the people who really have the statutory authority to do something about the problems we have. Meaning organizations outside of DOD? Yes. So for the, the the organizations in the IC with Title 50 authorities, the uh, obviously the State Department with a huge amount of authorities in foreign affairs, but Treasury, Commerce, uh, Justice, even DHS, all have authorities and capabilities that can be used to set conditions in the environment that make us a, able to be successful. What we do bring to the table is the ability to look at something that's happening somewhere in the world and say, there's a national security implication to that, that that our brothers and sisters in those other departments may not recognize. They're looking at going, oh, this company, this company just got bought out. That's buying, they build microchips that do ultrasound stuff. We see a problem with that beyond just economic competition. We understand as a department, there are national security implications. And if we can point those things out, then they can take action. But we have to be able to do that. And we have to be able to integrate all of this into some, some integration mechanism that allows us to campaign as a government, as a nation. That we don't have right now. And our adversaries most definitely do.
So if we, um, I, I'm, I'm, I want to circle back to that, but um, I want to ask one kind of follow-up question up first on um, sort of irregular warfare capabilities within the services. Um, we recently uh, released a, an episode of the podcast with Colonel Kurt Taylor, who's the commander of the 5th uh, Security Force Assistance Brigade. And advising is, as a, as, a, as a military mission, is something that we kind of think of uh, in the context of Iraq and Afghanistan, because we spent quite a bit of resources trying to essentially stand up and professionalize military forces in, in those two countries. Um, the army has decided that that's an important capability to retain and will be important going forward. Um, but that the best way to do it is to sort of create these separate units. Likewise, uh, irregular warfare is, you know, and I, I don't want to simplify things, but it's both, um, one of the kind of the things that a defining feature of our post 9-11 conflicts, so to speak. Um, and again, I know that's a simplification. And as as it's also a simplification to say it's sort of a basket of capabilities. But if we imagine irregular warfare as a basket of capabilities within the services is the best model to essentially do what the army has done with advising and sort of house this capabilities in specialized units, um, sort of separate from the bulk of traditional conventional forces. Or is it to create units that have a set of capabilities that includes that 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 IW basket where you can just sort of turn the dial, you know, toward toward more conventional operations when need be, or you know, the other direction towards irregular warfare uh, as as conditions dictate? I don't think there's one single answer for that. Uh, the Army created the SFABs in part because of readiness issues. They were getting nickel and dime to death. Units were losing leaders to be go off on onesies and twosies, you know, uh, advising missions and things like that with with ad hoc organizations thrown together. And this part of the solution was create dedicated force structure. So therefore, all these other BCTs can continue to focus on their assigned missions. Uh, I think that made sense for that case. I don't know that makes sense across the board. And um, once again, at the tactical level, people figure it out. Uh, I think what's more important than having units designated to do irregular warfare missions is to have the institutional uh, foundation to make sure that everybody understands that they have a full spectrum responsibilities from the lower end to the higher end and exercise and train those. So uh, special operations forces are fantastic. We are the best in the world, but not everything they do is a regular warfare. Uh, and likewise, obviously the conventional forces aren't unitaskers either. So you mentioned um, sort of the, uh, you know, the flags that might be raised by a company that produces some advanced technology being bought out. Um, you know, the, the modern war institute was stood up in part because there was sort of this, um, and again, I'm going to be overly simplistic here, but there was sort of this acknowledgement that there was a time when, when, um, you know, especially at kind of the tactical level, small unit level, you could be a pretty effective leader. If you graduated from West Point, say, and you knew the troop leading procedures and could execute them well, um, you knew how to, you know, read a map and read a compass and, and maneuver, you know, multiple squads on an objective, you could be a pretty good platoon leader. And that, um, 
the sort of modern battlefield no longer had had firewalls and again i'm you know f- for listeners mm-hmm. please please you know forgive me for for kind of simplifying this but there were no longer these firewalls that kept out social dynamics and political dynamics and economic dynamics and you had to kind of understand these things from an interdisciplinary perspective uh is that the case with uh with irregular warfare are we are we needing to think more about not just you know the capability of of conducting foreign internal defense missions or counterterrorism missions or counterinsurgency missions but also you know are, you know how all of that gets overlaid on things like like um you know foreign venture capital funds taking over a company that produces some advanced technology yes in a, in a word yes the even in a, a Title X environment, such as we had in Iraq and Afghanistan for years, where commanders were basically the law, we still were dependent upon our state and aid counterparts, our IC counterparts, uh, to create conditions in unity with us. And we didn't really pull that off as well as we should have. The If we keep our stove piped, mentality hey this is the military we we blow up stuff and we kill people when necessary you know uh, we're the nation's guard dog if you will then we are setting ourselves up to be the most successful force in the 20th century but that was 20 years ago Uh, 21st century conflict is a conflict of all across all the domains and spectrums and we just have got to get used to that. And that's where I go back to appreciating the context of a regular warfare. Our team has done a great job. Uh, hopefully we'll have this something to put on the street in the next few weeks. But we asked them to go back and look. The joint operating concept for regular warfare, the first version, came out in the 2006 time frame. And it said here the core missions of a regular warfare, you know, the big five, COIN, FID, UW, CT, and stability operations. And those five pillars have been quite an albatross around our neck in some ways because that's it was too easy to bend things into that. And then you didn't even have a force that understood what those missions were. I mean, we had people saying we've been doing stability operations in Afghanistan for 13 years at our meeting several months ago or several years ago. And another one saying we've been doing coin there for 13 years. And I'm like, you haven't done either one of them. You've been doing foreign internal defense since the government of Afghanistan was established and took over sovereignty of its own soil. We were doing foreign internal defense. That's what, or that's what we should have been doing. But we didn't even have leaders who knew what instruction book to go to. So this whole uh, activities-based approach has some applicability to tactical level, but the team has gone and done a mission analysis and looked at a functions level, looking at the joint functions and seeing what's different about a regular warfare and at an outcomes-based level. And, you know, the why we do a regular warfare or conduct things in the context of a regular warfare is as important or more important than anything else. It's all about what are you trying to accomplish? What's the strategic objective? And so we're going to be releasing that uh, sometime, hopefully in the next month or so. And I'm hoping that that will 
be something that anybody in the force can pick up and look at and go, oh, I get it. I see what my role is here. Uh, so uh, a long way around, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer for you, John, but uh, the bending the cap, you know, fit isn't a capability, it's a, it's a mission. Uh, unconventional warfare is not, it's not a, it's a mission, not a capability. There's a collection of capabilities that enable you to do it. But those, that collection of capabilities that enables you to do unconventional warfare also enables you to do a lot of other things that may not even have a name associated with them. And you could just throw them underneath the bin of a regular warfare if you want to. But thinking holistically and contextually is, I think, the way forward or else we're just not going to, we're not going to win. So before, uh, you mentioned this earlier, but before uh, you were at the, um, at the Office of Regular Warfare and, and Competition, now you were at Joint Forces Command in the, in the uh, Joint Regular Warfare Center. You've been working on Irregular Warfare for a number of years. I don't want to ask you, you know, kind of what keeps you up at night, but let me phrase it this way. What, what, um, what are the number one priorities that we should be focusing on uh, from an Irregular Warfare perspective if you look over, uh, over the, say, the you know, time horizon of 10 years? Uh, I go back to we've, we've got to develop an ability to campaign as a, as a nation. Yeah. And so there are elements of that campaign that will be military in nature. There'll be camp elements of a diplomatic, economic, uh, political, all these different things. But we have to be able to campaign as a nation because that's what our adversaries are doing to us. Uh, so that's first and foremost in my mind. The second is developing and you sitting at West Point is a terrific uh, place to start. You know, we have to develop the understanding of the context and the nature of modern conflict. You know, we were we were tasked when we were developing the regular warfare annex to come up with the big lessons learned. And I literally wrote them on a bar napkin and handed them to a buddy of mine. And that's pretty much what went into the document. But we said exquisite understanding is more valuable than exquisite capabilities. If you understand why you're in the predicament you're in or why you're in a fight or what the opportunity is in front of you, that's more valuable than X number of squadrons or carrier strike groups or whatever you, you might have, or BCTs or A-teams, because now you you can actually go about solving the problem you have and not the problem you want to have. And the third, uh, the third is not... Being, we can't be so myopic about, we have to be focused on the threats that, that are real and exist in the, in the uh, as they were enumerated in the national defense strategy, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, VEOs. But we have to keep our eyes open to what else could come around and bite us that we're not, we're not thinking about. Um, that could really threaten the values of our nation or the physical security of our people. So I think that's the top three. So to kind of circle back to the question we let off on um, or let off with about uh, competition, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost at risk of, of becoming a buzzword that loses its meaning because we read it, you know, so often and I'm as guilty about it or guilty of it as anybody, because, you know, if you look at the the content that we're publishing, uh, that modern war is publishing, you know, a, a pretty large, uh, plurality of articles have great power competition in the title. Um, 
you know, we, we also recorded an episode not long ago with a guy named Ollie Wine from the Rand Corporation talking about, you know, have we really even kind of defined what it is? Um, setting that aside, uh, if, if again, kind of, you know, looking out at say a 10 year time horizon, if, if 10 years from now we have sort of conceptualized an appropriate role for irregular warfare in a strategy characterized by great power competition, uh, what are some of the signs that we've, we've done a good job that we've done it right? So we're writing campaign plans and strategies that start at the competition continuum on the left-hand side in the present day, instead of writing campaign plans are really just con plans and contingency plans in disguise. Um, we will be fully integrated with our mission partners. We will be able to rely on the FBI as much as we rely on NATO headquarters. I think those are the, the biggest things that, that will be the, uh, that'll make me feel like we've done something. Is there anything else that, um, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything else that, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, uh, kind of a, a, maybe a picture of our listeners. It's, you know, we're an army organization, so we have a lot of army mm-hmm. listeners, but we have a lot of joint listeners as well. Um, and, and a lot of people who have a, who I, I would say are maybe professionally interested in, um, in topics related to modern war, but don't necessarily wear the uniform. Is there anything else kind of about irregular warfare that you think is important to, um, to sort of convey to people that you would hope would kind of shape their thinking uh, in their jobs, whatever that might be? Well, you know, when this idea of competition started building, uh, we had the term gray zone. Uh, General Dunford didn't like that term. So if General Dunford didn't like it, I loathed it, you know, at the time, because the chairman is my boss, but um, we we kept dancing around the lexicon. We still do. The lexicon is the most dangerous thing, and you can you can screw with in a building. I tell you, it, it it'll, it'll bring everything to a halt. But um, so the, the chairman at the time, General Dunford, started calling it competition below armed conflict, and we pushed back on that, saying if we're doing this, if we're really competing with Russia or China or whoever, there's going to be plenty of armed conflict. But what we try not to do is to have direct armed conflict. And you go back and you look at the Cold War, and that's a perfect example. Not, and actually, the Cold War was pretty easy compared to where we're at now, because we don't have we didn't have the economic interdependencies. We didn't have a global information grid where everybody has a cell phone and a camera and can you know can turn world opinion with a with a video clip. Um, but There'll be plenty of armed conflict. We're just trying to not get into a situation where uh, escalation moves out of our control. Because when nuclear armed powers get in that position, really bad things can happen. Um, I think realism is something we really need. Uh, We just can't make assumptions that just fly in the face of reality. And I see that happen a lot. Uh, while we're trying to conceptualize our way out of these problems. So, you know, I go back to exquisite understanding. Know and appreciate the world you're in, not the world you want to be in. And uh, we'll be okay. 
Well, Dave, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate you taking some time to uh, to have the conversation with me. I think it's a really important topic, um, you know, not least of which because it, it is something that as we kind of continue to transition, we've been doing it for a few years, but as we continue to transition to kind of, you know, the, again, the buzzwords that we talk about, mm -hmm. uh, large scale combat operations, you know, great power competition with peer or near peer adversaries. Uh, it's important that we, we sort of retain uh, an appropriate degree of balance uh, with all of the capabilities that we bring to bear, including those that are sort of central to uh, to the irregular warfare missions. So, thank you very much for uh, for for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. You guys are doing great work, and it's it's really helpful. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Really quickly, I just want to remind you again, if you are interested in Irregular Warfare, please check out the Irregular Warfare podcast. We have a great team of hosts who bring together some really incredible guests, and you can find it wherever you get your podcast or by checking out the podcast section of the MWI website. All right, thanks again. Thank you.